Hey, we're finishing off our series in James today. So we'll be in James chapter 5. If you would want to turn in your Bibles there, you can follow along today. Next week is Easter, as we mentioned. And the week after that, we're going to start a new series called The Cultural Creed. And in this series, what we're going to do is we're going to really look at the beliefs that our culture holds dear. And we're going to talk about how the gospel addresses those. And it's going to be a really poignant series. Uh, We're going to tackle topics like Black Lives Matter, abortion, LGBTQ stuff, and more. And then, which is, I think somebody jokingly said to me, like, awesome, you'll hit all these hard topics, and then you'll go on sabbatical. Um, So I didn't intend it that way, but that's what's going to happen. So uh, Pastor Kyle and the elders will be here to clean up whatever mess I make in that series, but no, I'm just joking. It will be a good series, and we're really trying to create that series for you so you know how to respond to the things of our culture in the way that the gospel would like you to respond. But today, I want to talk to us how we have to be a people of patience and prayer as we wait in the overlap of the ages. We need to be people of patience and prayer as we wait in the overlap of ages. In the Bible, young people you may not realize this, but two, there's two ages or two time periods. One is the present age, which is largely evil and it's under the power of Satan. And then there's the age to come, which is future when God will reign on earth. This is how the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, talks about it. The Old Testament talks about a strictly future. And at that time, like the end of Isaiah, we'll talk about the world will be full of justice, peace, and love. But as we see what happens with Jesus, Jesus comes and he says, God is in me is overlapping the two. And so we live in the overlap of those two ages. We live in the overlap of the present age and the age to come. As theologians said, that the age to come is already, but not yet. We live in the overlap, so we have to be patient people, and we have to be praying people. So let's look at how James talks about it when he talks about how we have to be a patient people. We just read this, James 5, 7 through 8. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. James calling us to be patient as we wait for Jesus to return. Be patient. The Jews at the time of Jesus were under Roman oppression, and they believed that when the Messiah came, he set up God's kingdom on earth as in heaven. And when he did that, he would destroy the Romans, and he would vindicate them And he would usher in the future age to come. But then Jesus enters the picture. He enters the picture at that time, which is very, it's like a powder keg of theories and theologies around that. And Jesus comes and he, he comes and he announces that God's kingdom is here. That God's rule on earth as is in heaven is happening through him. And he claims that in him, the age to come has overlapped with the present age. So we live right now at this transition point until Jesus' second coming. And when the transition to the age to come will be complete, what God will do at that moment, God will wipe away sin, suffering, suffering, sickness, and Satan. 
He hasn't done that yet, but it's already started in Jesus. And when that happens, when Jesus returns, we'll live with him in the new heavens and the new earth. So James twice says, be patient. In those two verses, he says twice, be patient. Be patient for Jesus to come. Be patient for the transition to be completed. So let me pause for a moment there. A lot of times, I'll get this question or a similar question. Pastor Evan, are we living in the last days? Are we living in the end times? And my favorite way of answering that is, yes, we are. And we have been for 2,000 years. What the New Testament talks about, the last days, the last days have started with Jesus. Actually, Peter in Acts chapter 2 says that the Holy Spirit being poured out on the apostles is a sign that the last days are here. And so maybe it's like because March Madness is on my mind, so I'm thinking about basketball right now. But the last days or the end times are a lot like the final minute of the fourth quarter of a basketball game. There's one minute left, but it takes a lot longer than one minute. And statistically, actually, if you want to impress your friends later, the last minute of a basketball game typically takes five and a half minutes to finish. So a lot of times, like, my kids will be watching Sixers games, and I'll be like, hey, guys, we need to, you guys need to go to bed. And they're like, Dad, there's a few minutes left. I'm like, yeah, but that's, that could take a while. <laughs> so it's, let's just transition that back to the Bible. So the last days, that last day's clock says one minute is left. And even though time is ticking down, it takes a while for it to tick down. So as James says, be patient. It's going to take a while. It could take another 20 seconds. It could take another 2,000 years. We don't know. So we have to be careful. This is what I want, the second point I want to make here is that we have to be careful about falling into chronological and geographical snobbery. And what I mean by that is that just because something seemingly bad happens in 21st century America does not mean that Jesus is coming back any sooner than he would at any other point in history. Like, what's happening now is not more difficult than, like, Hitler taking control of Europe. Like, it's not. All these times have gone, we've gone, the Christians have lived through these difficult times, time and time again. And not only is it snobbish because we kind of focus on America, but it's also snobbish because it's our problems then for some reason we think are ushering in Jesus' second coming. When we have Christians all around the world for centuries just dying for their faith and all of a sudden like things get a little bit difficult for us or like there's like the LGBTQ stuff on Netflix and we're like, oh my gosh, Jesus is coming back. Listen, you might be uneasy about the government or LGBTQ stuff or weird things happening in the Middle East. You know who else was? First century Christians. All that stuff was in Rome and more. You think LGBTQ stuff is off the charts crazy now? It was crazier then. And so James says, be patient. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. So my third point is, with, when talking about end times, is Jesus said 
No one knows when he'll return except the Father. So if Jesus didn't know, listen to me, no one who claims to know when Jesus is coming back knows. If Jesus doesn't know, you don't know. So my advice is, no matter how confident some people may be about when Jesus is going to return, don't listen to them. James, listen to James instead, who says, Jesus will come back, but be patient. So, but it's easy for us when we're asked to be patient to get impatient. So if you think about Palm Sunday, which is today, where we commemorate Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. The Jews, when they see Jesus come in, what do they do? They praise God as he comes in. They think, this is it. The age to come is here. God's going to set up his kingdom, and he's going to wipe out the Romans. But they misinterpreted Jesus, didn't they? Even Rome misinterpreted Jesus. Why do you think Pilate asked Jesus if he's the king of the Jews? He's not saying, are you the Messiah, and can I put my faith and trust in you? He's like, hold a second. We, I'm, the, I'm the king of the Jews. Like, I'm in charge of the Jews. Caesar's in charge of the Jews. Are you saying you're Caesar? That's what Pilate is asking. See, the Jews waited for a long time for the Messiah to come, and they were so eager that when they were willing to welcome Jesus in and they were praising God, but they were praising him as a conquering king. But once they realized he wasn't coming to kill the Romans, but to die on one of their crosses, he wasn't coming to bring his kingdom about through the sword, but through the message of the gospel, what happens is they get impatient, and later in the week, what do they do? They turn on him, and they crucify him. We have to be patient Otherwise, we might turn on Jesus too. James says there's no supermarket for you to go to and buy a remedy for sin, sickness, suffering, and Satan. But like a farmer, you have to wait. And if we get impatient in our patience, not only will we turn on Jesus, James says we'll turn on each other too. So James says, be patient with one another. Listen to what he says in verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Our tendency in the overlap of the ages isn't to be patient with each other. It's to grumble about each other. And James knows that. Like you think, you know, a, a few decades after Jesus leaves, Christians are grumbling against each other. It's been 2,000 years, millennia, a couple millennia. Christians grumble against each other. And James says, you and I grumble against each other because you and I think we're the judge. We grumble about the smallest theological differences with other Christians because we think we're on the judge's bench. We grumble about worship styles because we think we're wearing the judge's, the judge's gown. We grumble about contrasting post-service parenting styles. It never happens here, right? Or translations of the Bible. Why? Because we think we hold the judge's gavel. But there's only one judge, and his name is Jesus. And the irony is, James says, if we judge each other in grumbling against each other and about each other, we actually judge ourselves. 
But why do we grumble? Years ago, when Amanda and I, we took our kids to Disney World, we decided at this point we were going to go for two weeks. So, we just, so for the first three or four days, how do you think my kids responded? They grumbled. They grumbled about missing their friends at home. They're in the happiest place on earth, and they're grumbling. And I can't speak for Amanda, and I won't speak for Amanda. That's a very important distinction. But I know that I grumbled too because I paid, I don't know what the exact number is, but it's somewhere around Buku Bucks number to be in the happiest place on earth. And my kids weren't happy. The re- I expected my kids to be happy, but the reality was they weren't. See, we grumble when our experiences don't match reality. So let me give you a biblical example, a life example, and some church examples, okay? About how we grumble when our expectations don't match reality. Israel expected to get to the promised land quicker and easier than they did, but the reality, that was their expectation, but the reality was that it took a long and hard 40 years. So they grumbled. And the interesting part of the story is they grumbled, so they get another 40 years. Here's a life example. The reality is your spouse misses a lot of your hints. But you expected your marriage to be flooded with romance or sexual intimacy at the drop of a hat. So what do you do? You grumble. My expectation was sexual intimacy whenever I want it. The reality is, sometimes my wife is tired or my husband worked late. And so he's just tired and doesn't have time for romance right now. So what we do, we grumble. The reality is that this church has a certain mission, values, and leadership. But you expected the things you loved most about your old church can exist at this one but it doesn't, so you grumble. The reality is that Sunday worship isn't about you, but you came expecting that Sundays would be about your preferences, so you drive home grumbling. The reality is a God that doesn't offend you or challenge you is no God at all, but you expect preaching to never offend or challenge you and just rubber-stamp your life, so you grumble. The reality is that Orthodox Christians agree on the essential things, but there's widely different views on the non-essential things. But you expect that everyone will read the Bible the same way as you, and when they don't, you grumble. The reality is that not everyone does things the way you would do them, but you expect that if they knew what was good for them, they would, but they don't, so you grumble. Expectation doesn't match reality and we grumble. So when you're and when you're a grumbler, you know who you attract? More grumblers. You have grumbling friends and you have grumbling people in your small groups and the people you text are grumblers. And you know who you create? More grumblers. 
Grumbling kids, then grumbling grandkids, and grumbling disciples. And you and your echo chamber of grumblers will eventually get impatient and you will cause division or you'll leave this church to go grumble at another one. If you're not content here, you're not going to be content someplace else unless you deal with the contentment issue that you have. Because what you're doing is, what we often do is we project our expectations on others. And that's not fair. It's not fair for me to project my expectations on you. It's not fair for you to project your expectations on me or each other. But we do it all the time. And it's unfair and it's actually prideful and selfish too. To think that your expectations should be everyone else's reality. So James continues in verse 10 through 11. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So when you feel like you want to grumble because your expectations don't match reality, the first thing you can do is be grateful. God is compassionate and merciful, James says. Even when reality doesn't match our expectations, we've been shown compassion and mercy from God because of Jesus when we deserved condemnation and wrath because of sin. When I have a hard time being grateful and I really want to grumble, I remind myself of this Ethiopian proverb that says, do not blame God for creating the tiger but thank him for not giving it wings. Right? There's problems that you have that could be a lot worse. You've been given too much to, be, to grumble. Be grateful. Additionally, if you feel like grumbling, don't sweat the small stuff. It's my challenge to you. Ask yourself, is the thing that really irritated me that big of a deal? Like, not everything is a code red and DEFCON 20. It's just not. But if you treat everything like that, what happens is the people in your life just block you out. They don't listen to you anymore because everything's code red. Everything's DEFCON 20. And so if the thing that irritated you is still irritating you after a few days, it might be a legit thing, a legit concern. It might be a legit thing that you have between you and a brother or sister in the Lord. And Jesus says, at that point, you have an obligation to go and talk to that person. Not email them, not text them, talk to them. Otherwise, don't sweat the small stuff and move on. And also, grow in self-reflection. What does the thing that irritated you reveal about you? Let me say it again. What is the thing that irritated you? reveal about you. That thing needs to be addressed by God. Some of us are easily irritated when we're told what to do by someone in authority because we have rebellious hearts. It, listen to me. Some of you, I just know because this is my heart too, it doesn't matter what people tell us. It doesn't matter who the authority figure is and it doesn't matter what they ask us to do. But just because somebody in authority asked me to do something, 
I immediately don't want to do it because I have a rebellious heart. That needs to be addressed. Young people, that needs to be addressed with your parents and your teachers. Young, but for us adults, that needs to be addressed too. God needs to work in all of our hearts to fix those things. Some of us are easily irritated, easily irritated by someone doing something differently than we do it because we want to be in control. That needs to be addressed. I don't know what it is, but what is the thing that irritated you reveal about you? What does that thing reveal about you? And then follow someone else's example. James knows it's often easier to follow than to lead. So James says, do you need guides on what it looks like to be patient in suffering without turning into a grumbler? Look to the prophets. Look to Job. So many of us just think like our lives should be easy. I'm a follower of Jesus. My life should be perfect and easy. This bed of roses. And James goes, hey, when we're actually struggling, don't be like, I'm not a Christian or something's wrong. God is doing something against me. It's like, wait, look at Isaiah who is sawn in two. Look at Jeremiah who was stoned. But God met them and they were really close to God in those moments, in those times. Or for us, maybe in the New Testament, look at Stephen. Or look at the saints in church history and what they've gone through. Or even saints in our church body who suffered and endured without grumbling. Sometimes it's easier to follow than to lead. And lastly, be encouraged. When you feel like you want to grumble, be encouraged. Because Paul, when he wants his readers, because of the reality of Jesus' second coming, is taking longer than they expected, he writes this to them. He writes 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. He says, The Lord, which is Jesus, will descend from heaven. And skip down a little bit. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This passage has been widely misunderstood. So let me just explain something for a moment. In ancient Rome, when Caesar would conquer a city or a town, he would wait outside of the city walls on his horse. Okay, so Caesar, he conquers a town, he waits outside the city walls on his horse. And what he would do at that moment is he would force everyone in the town that he had just conquered, which is at that point is really just women and children, to come out of the city to celebrate Caesar conquering them, to celebrate his arrival. And then what he would do is everyone would go in the city together, clapping for Caesar and celebrating Caesar. Thank you for killing my husband and destroying my home. Thanks for being here, Caesar. That's what he would force them to do. But what Paul is doing, he's saying Jesus is better than Caesar. When Paul says Jesus is Lord, the New Testament says Jesus is Lord, what they're implicitly saying is Caesar is not. Through his death, life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has been given authority over heaven and earth. And when Jesus completes the transition to the age to come, this time he won't come on a donkey, but he'll come in glory and power. See, Caesar, what Paul's saying is Caesar may have been a conqueror of cities and towns and the Lord over a bygone empire, but Jesus is conqueror over death and will show himself as Lord of the universe. And when that happens, 
Those who put their faith in Jesus, whether dead or alive at that time, will go outside the walls of the earth and meet Jesus in the clouds, not to go to heaven, but to come back to a renewed earth with him. Too many Christians, because they've misunderstood these words and think it's all about getting sucked up into heaven, have used these words to scare others. But what does Paul say how to use them? He says, encourage one another with these words. Be encouraged. When the transition to the age to come is complete, everything that plagues you, all the destruction that sin has caused, or the suffering you're going through, or the sickness that you're experiencing, or the attacks you're receiving from Satan, all of that will be gone forever. Be encouraged. Don't grumble. Be patient. Be encouraged. And then he wraps up this thought. He says, be, be patient by being truthful. In verse 12, he says, patient people don't need to take oaths or give guarantees to prove they're telling the truth. Instead, patient people are people of their word, just like God is God of his word. And then James tells us to be praying people. He says he wants us to contend. God wants us to contend in prayer as we wait for Jesus' return. Mark Sayers, as I've said in the past, every time I read Mark Sayers, I wonder why I don't read more Mark Sayers. But Mark Sayers, in his book, Reappearing Church, he challenges Christians in our time not to be churchgoers, but to be remnants. Churchgoers, he said, are cultural Christians who say they believe in Jesus, but Jesus doesn't change their lives. Or they are what I might call crusty Christians who say they love Jesus, but he doesn't enliven their hearts. Instead, be remnants. Churchgoers are like spectators who watch the final minute of the game, but remnants are on the court putting their bodies on the line. Remnants are deeply loved, deeply devoted, and faithful. Discipleship, he says, discipleship is at the core of their being. They're not consumers, but contenders. They take on the lion's share of ministry in their churches, and they operate out of genuine spirit-filled empowerment. And then he says this, listen, in our age of opinion, social media venting, virtue signaling, and image management, remnants choose a different path to pursue with others in the hidden places the eternal perspective, to cry and contend, to step into the gap, Choosing not punditry, but contention. Instead, their way is prayer. So James says in verse 13, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, and anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Based on this, we might say remnants pray to God when things aren't going well and praise him when things are. But churchgoers only pray when things aren't going well. What's your prayer life like? If it's going well for you right now, are you praising God in your prayer life? Or do you only go to God when you need something? Churchgoers do that. Remnants pray and praise. Remnants embrace community as a blessing and embrace their roles within it. But churchgoers see community as optional 
or as a curse for when it's convenient for them. Churchgoers keep their sickness private, but James says remnants, if they're sick, get on the phone with their elders and ask the elders to pray over them and anoint them with oil. There's nothing magical about the oil. It's just a symbolic way of, making a, of marking a sick person as someone who needs special attention from God. It's like when we're praying, so when we do this at Liberty, when we gather with the elders and we pray over somebody who's sick, we mark them with the sign of the cross in oil, just as our way of saying, this person right here, Lord, needs special attention from you. And while it's not always the case, and Jesus tells us this in John chapter 9, Sometimes the person is sick because of unrepentant sin. See, sick churchgoers act like their sin isn't that big of a deal, so they keep it hidden and they, because they only really want God to make them physically whole. But remnants are thankful when their elders ask if they have any unrepentant sin in their lives because they want to be made physically whole and spiritually whole. So pick up in verse 16 again. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He's saying like, Elijah was just a human. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again. And heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. See, if you're a churchgoer, you believe dealing with sickness and sin in your church is only the job of elders and pastors, but remnants acknowledge the authority of elders and pastors and submit to it, but seek, sick, see sickness and sin as everyone's problem, so they contend for each other in prayer. They know that if they're in a right relationship with God through Jesus, which is what it means to be righteous, to be a right relationship with God, God can use their prayers for healing and forgiveness. And you might think, James says, you might think, I am only human. What can I do? James says, so is Elijah. He was just a guy. But what happened? God used his prayers. And then he finishes this way. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Churchgoers see someone who wanders from the faith and they think, it's not my place to say anything. Churchgoers live and let live. Doesn't matter if a brother or sister in the Lord goes off, doesn't want to be a Christian anymore, doesn't want to come to church. church remnants go, wait a second, I love that person and I'm going to contend for them even if they're wandering and I'm going to seek to restore them back into the church. And Paul says in Galatians 6, he says, do it gently. Right? He does, like, we're not supposed to like, go tie up people and then bring them back to church and put them in the front row in ropes. Right? Like, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, go gently and try to restore them, bring them back. See, what happens is remnants stand in the overlap of ages for each other because they understand that Jesus stood in the gap for them. And when we're remnants, we're patient in our suffering. We don't grumble and we're grateful. We run to elders and to each other for prayer. We pray earnestly for healing. And if sin is plaguing us, we confess it to each other. And if we're sinned against, we don't hold grudges. Churchgoers hold grudges. Remnants instead 
are, are quick to seek forgiveness and to give it to others. Remnants love others because Christ loved them first. So my challenge to all of us is let's stand strong in the overlap of the ages. Jesus is going to come back someday. But for now, let's be patient with Jesus and with each other. Let's not grumble against each other. Let's love each other well. And let's be remnants. Remnants who contend for each other in prayer. Remnants who forgive. Remnants who are patient in suffering. As we wait, one day Jesus is going to come back. That's going to be a great day. But for now, let's be patient and pray.